Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled Treating Obesity as a Chronic Disease is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, in partnership with Practicing Clinicians Exchange, Pro-CE, LLC, and Q-Synthesis, and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello and welcome to this presentation on treating obesity as a chronic disease. My name is Dr. Susan Tiso. I'm a family nurse practitioner and retired professor from the University of California, Irvine. I'm excited to have um, esteemed faculty with me here today. Carolyn Apovian, professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts and Donna Ryan, Professor Emerita at Pennington Biomedical Research Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. And the correct answer is use shared decision-making strategies to discuss weight options for weight management or weight loss, including pharmacotherapy. And the correct answer would be C, a 32-year-old woman with a BMI of 30 and no comorbidities. And now I'm going to hand it over to, um, to Dr. Donna Ryan. Thank you so much, Susan. You know, if obesity is a chronic disease, it's got an etiology, right? And that's what we're going to talk about first. Here's what's going on in the United States. and We're all aware of this from our practices. But if you look at the, at the dotted line in orange, that's women with a BMI of, of 30 or higher. And the solid line is men with a BMI of 30 or higher. You can see that there's an uptick that began after that 1980 NHANES survey. And it's gone up, up, up ever since. So that at the last NHANES survey, there are 42.4% of U.S. adults who have a BMI over 30. And if you look at the very bottom of this chart, you can see that there's also been an increase in BMI of 40 or higher. And that is currently 9.2% of the U.S. population. So we've got a major problem on our hands. What is driving this obesity epidemic? Well, the first thing to understand about obesity is that our genes are very important in uh, driving risk for developing uh, excess abnormal body fat in an obesogenic environment. So what I'm showing you here on the bottom are monozygotic twins. These are identical twins. They share 100% of the same DNA. And I want you to notice how much concordance there is in body habitus among each member of that twin bear. But then look at the dizygotic twins on the top picture. They share 50% of the same DNA. And look at how much discordance there is in body habitus among each member of the twin bear. So what these genes are, they're common uh, polymorphisms. Over 200 have been associated with BMI, over 100 with waist circumference. And what they do is as we aggregate them, they put us at greater risk for developing obesity. But you know, our genes haven't changed. What has changed is the environment. And so this obesogenic environment is what is driving that, that, that obesity epidemic that I showed on the first slide. So yeah, genetic susceptibility combined with an obesogenic environment gives rise to the phenotype of obesity. It's not quite as simple as it seems because there are many, many factors that drive risk 
for obesity, including some of the ones shown here. So stress is important. Financial stress, emotional stress can drive weight gain in susceptible individuals. Medications we're prescribing for mental health disorders, for contraception, for for, um, chronic hypertension, those medications can drive weight gain. So there are many, many factors that that give rise to uh, this obesity epidemic on a population basis. But you know, on an individual basis, it's very important to recognize the social determinants of health because these play a major role in risk for obesity. So individuals who have low socioeconomic status, low levels of education, low income, or an increased risk for obesity. Those who live in an environment where there's a lot of food insecurity, where there is lack of access to healthy foods, where there's lack of access to an environment where you can be physically active safely, those drive risk for obesity. So also minority status can drive risk for obesity. So obesity is associated with environmental factors, with iatrogenic environment, the the, the things that we're prescribing that drive weight gain, and also many social factors. So to show you the power of the obesogenic environment, I want you to look at this slide. And look on the left. What this is, is it's a survey of young adults who were followed for 18 years. So they were age 20 when they started the survey, and then they were age 38 when they stopped. And they self-reported height, weight, and from that we calculated BMI and, and, and followed what happened to their weight over that time period. And as you can see for men and for women, there's this slow, steady weight gain over young adulthood. That is the power of this obesogenic environment. So what's going on there is there's more than 20 pounds of weight gain that's occurring in that period on average. But what's important is that almost everybody is susceptible to some degree of weight gain. 95% of individuals will gain at least one BMI unit during this period. Some individuals gain a lot more. They're more susceptible to those environmental forces. So another way of looking at it is with the NHANES surveys. Here I'm showing you women in orange and men in black. And as you can see between uh, the, the survey done in 1999-2000 to that in 2015-16, there's an increase in average BMI for both men and for women. That is the power of the obesogenic environment. You know, so that's great for the population. But, you know, we're not treating populations, we're treating individuals. And so when we look at, at weight across a lifespan, we generally see something like this. We gain weight due to multiple factors, not working the night shift. Pregnancy is associated with weight retention and can be severe in some women. Uh, antidepressants, depression, stress, all of these things can drive weight gain. This individual has had episodes of weight loss, but they were almost always followed by regain of that weight and over the lifespan, a trajectory that shows weight gain. So what's going on there? The reason that obesity is a chronic disease is that the body is defending its highest fat mass. So as we are gain weight, our body defends this new weight as a new normal weight. As we gain a little more weight, our body defends that weight 
as another new normal weight. So when we try to lose weight, we are going to face metabolic and biologic adaptations. So Caroline, why don't you just say a bit about the tug of war of weight management? Thank you, Donna. And uh, that was a great introduction to this whole reason for the increase in prevalence of obesity that uh, Dr. Ryan has talked about that's happened really since the 1960s. What is going on here? Well, what's going on is that, you know, our our metabolic uh, center in the brain, which is in the arcuate nucleus, protects our body fat mass. And it has, it's very tightly regulated. And if it's so tightly regulated, why is it that we're all gaining weight in this environment? Something happened to create a dysfunction. And we think it is something in the environment, the ultra processed food, the high sugar, high fat content of the food, the palatability of the food, maybe a preservative in the food that caused inflammation so that the brain can't tell, uh, can't get the signals that you're full. So for whatever reason, the brain is defending more fat than is healthy for each individual. And when we think about the tug of war, so so, uh, if and many of us do try to lose weight with dieting, which, which reduces calorie intake and increased activity. So when you start to reduce your cal- calorie intake and increase your activity, you certainly do lose weight. We typically say if you reduce your calorie intake by 500 to 1,000 calories a day, you will lose one to two pounds of weight per week. But that doesn't say anything about what's happening with the tug of war. Because if you do that, you should lose weight and keep it off. But what happens is your body, uh, your body changes its gut hormones that, that uh, basically think you're starting to starve because the, the, the brain is saying, well, uh, you know, we're reducing body fat here. Leptin levels are dropping. And what does the body try to do when it thinks you're starving? It decreases metabolism. How does it do that? It decreases the, uh, basically, the, 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 the um, calories you burn with low-level work from muscle. So it, it decreases metabolism by increasing the efficiency of muscle doing low-level work, like walking around. And we walk around every day, all the time. And so we're burning less energy. Metabolism drops. And what also happens is we get an increase of the hunger hormone, which is called ghrelin, which is secreted from fats, from uh, cells in the stomach. And it makes you hungry uh, right before you eat. It's a short-term hormone that makes you eat. We also see a decrease in the fullness hormones. 
leptin, PYY, GLP-1, and GIP, and oxantimodulin. We know all of these, we know all of the fullness hormones. We know there must be more hunger hormones. We haven't discovered them yet. So the reduction in those hormones usually tell the brain it's time to stop eating. And now those fullness hormones have been reduced. And so this is the tug of war. You try to lose weight and then the factors, the counter-regulatory hormones change and you regain the weight back. So what are the alterations in appetite regulation? An increase in ghrelin, decrease in GLP-1, GIP, CCK, PYY insulin and amylin, and a decrease in resting in total energy expenditure from an increase in muscle efficiency, which is related to leptin levels. That is what happens. Okay, so we really need to change our way of thinking because of all this research that has taught us about these strong biologic forces making weight loss difficult and regain easy. It's not about willpower. If you understand the tug of war, it's not about willpower. Are there people who can lose weight and keep it off? Yes, there are. We know that from the weight loss registry, 10,000 patients who've left, kept 50 pounds off for at least 10 years. What do they have in common? They're basically vigilant about every calorie they put in their mouth and they exercise religiously, eat breakfast every morning and weigh themselves every day. Most people don't have the time to do that. And it requires a vigilance to overcome these biologic forces. So we can't expect people to do that all the time. It's not about willpower. That's right, Caroline. And I think it's our duty to explain to patients these physiologic adaptations that occur when they, they try to lose weight. And to explain to patients that it's not their fault, it's their biology that makes it so difficult to achieve and sustain weight loss. So it's absolutely one of the foundations in understanding obesity as a chronic disease. So let's talk about how we diagnose obesity. You know, on a population basis, BMI is a really good measure. It corresponds well with body fat. And so when we look at populations, we have a cut point at a BMI of 25, that's, a, that's the overweight category, and a BMI of 30 or higher as the obesity category. So those are good cut points on a population basis because we see risk increase for cardiovascular diseases for all-cause mortality. It starts to increase at a BMI of 25, and it increases more rapidly as the BMI exceeds 30. The waist circumference is another good cut point, 35 inches for women, 40 inches for men. Now, some populations require different BMI cut points. And so the BMI cut points for Asians are lower because individuals of Asian descent have a phenotype where they tend to store fat less well subcutaneously. They tend to store excess fat viscerally and have a lot more cardiometabolic problems due to, due to fat. So their cut points are BMI of 23 for overweight and 25 or obesity. And similarly, the waist circumference cut points are, are lower than in uh, individuals of European descent. 
So the way we 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 um, we use this BMI for on a population level is we use it as a guidance for for how to apply our treatments. So we're going to apply treatments that have more risk to our individuals who have higher health risk. So a BMI of 30 or higher is the cut point for eligibility for bariatric surgery. So it's a BMI of 30 or higher with a complication like diabetes or BMI of 35 without complications that make one eligible for bariatric surgery. And our medication cut points are 27 with a comorbidity or 30 or higher. So, you know, this BMI has come under fire lately and there are some valid criticisms of it when we try to apply these cut points to individuals because we do run into individuals who have a BMI that's over 25 or over 30 who don't have excess abnormal body fat. They may be perfectly healthy, have normal glycemia, no cardiovascular risk factors, a normal waist circumference. We see this frequently in bodybuilders and in athletes. So that's one instance where the BMI does not correlate well with body fat, and it's not a good measure for making a clinical diagnosis for obesity. And similarly, we run into individuals who have low muscle mass, but excess fat mass. And this would be normal weight, but obesity, because they have excess abnormal body fat, increased waist circumference, and they may have cardiometabolic complications of obesity. So on an to define obesity, it's it the the definition of this disease, this chronic disease, it, according to the World Health Organization, is that it's excess abnormal body fat that is impairing health. So look, as clinicians, we are not using the BMI as the only diagnosis. Yes, I know it's in the ICD-10 codes. It's also in the ICD-11 codes that are coming, but we must apply our clinical judgment. And so we use that BMI as a screening tool. And then we evaluate the patient with a waist circumference, with cardiometabolic risk factors for assessment of other complications of obesity. The clinical diagnosis of obesity is based upon using BMI as a screener and then using our clinical judgment to assess that the patient has excess abnormal body fat that can impair their health. You know, I think the way to think about this was so beautifully illustrated by Steve O'Reilly. He run, won the uh, Banting Lecture Award uh, from the ADA several years ago, and he talked about the soggy bathroom carpet model of overnutrition-related metabolic disease. I love it. So what he, you know, we all need some fat. So he, his metaphor for storing body fat is the bathtub. And, you know, our energy intake is in the faucet. And the drain is the energy expenditure. And we need to have a healthy mass of fat to fill our bathtubs. But if we take in too much energy, we're going to overflow the bathtub and we're going to get the soggy bathroom carpet, which is cardiometabolic disease. The people with the South Asian phenotype have limited capacity to store fat in healthy depots like subcutaneous adipose tissue depots. They have a smaller bathtub. So I think the um, <clears throat> the ability to store fat in healthy depots is genetically determined, it's hormonally determined, 
after menopause, women tend to lose the fat in their hips and thighs and get more visceral adiposity. But it's really the key to understanding how obesity drives risk for many diseases. Because this ectopic abnormal body fat looks different under the microscope than subcutaneous adipose tissue. It's full of very large adipocytes, dying adipocytes. It's infiltrated by macrophages, and it's got a much worse profile. It's more atherogenic. It's more prothrombotic. It's more, it promotes insulin resistance. It's this ectopic abnormal fat store that's stores that are really driving all the complications of obesity. So obesity can affect every organ system. More than 200 have been associated, diseases have been associated with obesity. How does it produce all of these things? We know there's type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, GERD. You seem to be oh, many, many complications of obesity. How is this excess abnormal body fat driving all of these? Well, in some cases, it's just the burden of the fat mass itself. And that's true in GERD. So increased intra-abdominal pressure promotes gastroesophageal reflux and urinary incontinence and around the neck, obstructive sleep apnea. But most of the time, it's the lipotoxic effects of that excess abnormal body fat that's driving risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, 13 types of cancers. So this abnormal body fat produces cytokines and chemokines, adipokines that are prothrombotic, pro-inflammatory. There's immune dysfunction. It promotes blood pressure elevation. It produces angiotensinogen. It promotes insulin resistance. So there many, this lipotoxic environment is very, very much involved in the promotion of cardiometabolic risk with obesity. It's not just that there's a systemic milieu, because there is. There's a systemic milieu of pro-atherogenic, pro-thrombotic, pro-inflammatory factors, but there's also the location of that body fat is really, really important. So epicardial adipose tissue is an example I like to use. That, That fat is right where the coronary arteries are coursing through, and it's right on top of the myocardium. So that those blood vessels in the myocardium are subjected to all of those lipotoxic effects. They're right there, and it's producing abnormalities. So that's the pathophysiology of this chronic disease, and it's important that we understand that if we're going to help our patients. But look, We don't need to get our patients to a normal weight loss. Modest weight loss can help patients patients really improve a lot of their cardiometabolic symptoms. Caroline, would you like to talk a little bit about this? Yes. So the question is, why is modest weight loss so beneficial if, you know, even bariatric surgery for patients who weigh 400 pounds, we can get them down to 300 but we don't usually get them down to a quote unquote normal body weight. Why do we see resolution of diabetes sleep apnea? It's because each organ system um, has its own differential improvement in risk factors based on the body. So first of all, when you uh, achieve a 10% weight loss, there is a 30% f- 
visceral adipose tissue loss, which is, and, and uh, we, we know this from animal models by making them gain weight and lose weight. When they gain weight, they first gain visceral fat and then adipose. And when they lose weight, they first lose visceral fat, then adipose. So we're going to get more of a bang for your buck with that 10% weight loss because most of it is going to be visceral fat loss. So we get a benefit right away in insulin sensitivity. Blood uh, hyperinsulinemia drops because we're eating less. So less insulin is, is coming from the pancreas. Blood glucose drops. And then we get the risk factors for thrombosis and inflammatory markers drop later. Endothelial function later. But right away, we're going to get an improvement in insulin sensitivity and all of the improvements that you see with that. So. This is good news because it's not necessary to achieve a normal body weight to achieve major health benefits. Moderate weight loss is always more achievable and more sustainable than more um, aggressive weight loss. More aggressive weight loss is usually obtained with bariatric surgery procedures. Ectopic and visceral body fat is mobilized preferentially because the body is doing what's right, what's healthy for the body. All right. So how, what, what do we know about percent weight loss and therapeutic uh, complication reduction? So for a th- as little as a 3 to 5% weight loss has been shown to improve the risk of developing diabetes if you already have prediabetes. And we see the maximum benefit of diabetes prevention at about a 15% weight loss. For hypertension, we need to see a little more weight loss than that, maybe 5%, 5%, but even more than 15% keeps decreasing that blood pressure. Dyslipidemia, because it's driven, because weight loss really drives a reduction in triglyceride levels and triglyceride levels are related to prediabetes, we see as little as 3%, but the triglycerides are still dropping at greater than 15% weight loss. Hyperglycemia, same idea, three to greater than 5%, but 15%. Now, when when we're looking at fatty liver disease, We don't see a reduction quite so early. We really need to get to 10% weight loss, which does improve the um, steatosis, inflammation, and mild fibrosis. Sleep apnea, you also need to see at least 10% because we see little benefit with 5%. Osteoarthritis and stress incontinence, these are the more anatomic. Um, dysfunctions from obesity, you really have to get some weight off, 5 to 10% to see the improvement in joint uh, stress mechanics and incontinence from the sheer stress of the excess fat around the bladder. 
What about GERD? Well, GERD is, diff is different in men and women. For, to, get, to, to improve GERD in males, you really have to see 10%. Why is that? There's more GERD in males. They have more abdominal fat. Um, you really have to see 10%. For women, it's a little different because they, they have less uh, push on, the, uh, on their hiatal hernia and on their uh, abdominal area push into the esophagus. So you, you can see as little as 5% improving that. And with PCOS, which affects about 7% of, of uh, uh, women in the United States, we see a good result starting at 5%. Why 5%? That's what you need to lower androgens and improve ovulation and also, again, increase insulin sensitivity. So we do see um, a differential here in terms of therapy for, uh, from weight loss. Now, what do we need to do at the primary care level to treat obesity and prevent complications? We need to treat the weight first. So we're starting to change this paradigm. The old treatment paradigm is to monitor and treat the dyslipidemia the hypertension, impaired glucose tolerance. How do we do that? We monitor lipid panels, blood pressure, blood glucose. We provide diets for, in particular for dyslipidemia, decreased fat diet, decreased cholesterol. For hypertension, decreased salt in your diet. For impaired glucose tolerance, decreased sugar. And then primary care is uh, no how to treat these three uh, diseases with medications, statins and fibrates, with uh, antihypertensives. And when it comes to impaired glucose tolerance, we used to treat right away with sulfonylureas, glitazones, and even insulin. People are still doing this today. They're, they've got 10 minutes per patient. They're already on these medications. They're, they're just basically monitoring the blood pressure, hemoglobin A1C, and lipids, and then just re-prescribing these medications. And maybe at the end, uh, primary cares will look at weight, BMI, and talk about diet and exercise, and maybe even think about some of the medications. But primarily, they're treating the, co the complications of obesity, where if we adopt the new treatment paradigm, just treat the weight first with diet and exercise and even some of the medications that we're uh, starting to use for obesity, the new ones, the GLP-1s, then we can see after some weight loss, what's going on with the lipids, the hypertension and glucose tolerance. And we may not need to uh, promote the use of these medications because we treated the obesity, which started the complications we're talking about. All right. So there's a significant unmet need in obesity management. Why am I saying that? So we have 42% of Americans in the United States who have obesity. We are not, we're, we're not even putting 
the diagnosis of obesity in our electronic medical records. Where I, I, you know, when I see the patient, of course, I'm putting the diagnosis in because that's what I do, but it's not already in the record. So that's a problem. Out of the 100% of patients living with obesity, less than 40% have a diagnosis of obesity in the record. Who's getting treatment? Anti-obesity treatment, less than 20% of those 100%. And then people prescribed an anti-obesity medication from that 100%, about 1% to 2%. If you said this about diabetes or hypertension or heart disease, you would say this is negligent, but that's what's happened. So let's talk about assessment and management. How do, you, how do you start treating obesity in your offices? You want to determine the degree of obesity. The best, easiest, uh, most convenient measure we have is the height and weight and determining the BMI. We also use the waist circumference. Anything over 40 inches in men, over 35 in women is considered an abnormal a distribution of visceral body fat. Beyond the BMI, the waist circumference, so BMI is over 25, considered overweight, BMI over 30 is obesity. Assess the comorbidities, how severe are they? Do they need to be treated in addition to weight loss or can we use the weight loss to reduce those complications? Look for medications that promote weight gain, and that in total will help you assess the risk of this patient's uh, comorbidities. What do you look for in your physical exam? Get, a, get the right cuff to measure the blood pressure. If the cuff is too small, you're going to get a falsely low blood pressure. Look at the back of the neck for acanthosis, nigricans, and skin tags to alert you to the fact that the patient has insulin resistance and may be at risk for prediabetes or diabetes. Look at, the, look at your thyroid. Med, um, do an exam on your thyroid. Check the TSH. If you have any indication that there's something awry there, we always check the TSH. Sometimes we find undiagnosed hypothyroidism and look for signs of PCOS. You've got to talk to the patient about irregular periods and maybe do some labs. So what labs are you going to do? Blood sugar, look for impaired fasting glucose. Do your lipids, look for elevations in triglyceride and low HDL. LFTs, abnormalities may suggest non-alcoholic stepatitis, but you can do a FIB4 score that uses the age, platelet count, AST and ALT to decide whether or not you should do a fiber scan to look for undiagnosed NAFLD. Uh, you can do microalbumin levels in urine, the A1C important, TSH important. And most of the time when you have extreme obesity, your ultra-sensitive C-reactive pro protein is going to be quite elevated. Take an obesity-focused history, assessing the patient preparedness, reasons for motivations. You know, a lot of times motivational interviewing is very important for assessing if the patient is ready to undergo this journey with you. Um, 
What do you want to know about your patients? What are the patient's goals and expectations? What has the patient found hard beforehand? Um, understanding risks and benefits of treating the obesity now. Talk about physical activity and how much time does the patient have to embark on this journey. Donna, let's talk about treatment options. Okay. Um, let me take it away here. Okay, so um, to repeat, what we're going to do is we're going to use that BMI as a screening tool. We're going to use our waist circumference to help assess whether the patient has evidence of excess abnormal body fat that's impairing health. And if that is the case, if we make a clinical diagnosis of obesity, we want to achieve weight loss. We want all of the benefits that weight loss can bring. So let's talk about some of those uh, treatment approaches. This is our overall scheme. You know, as patients get more severe disease, we tend to use interventions that are riskier. Foundational to all treatments for obesity is recommendations around lifestyle, around diet, physical activity, and behaviors that can support weight loss. We can add pharmacotherapy if patients have a complication and a BMI of 27 and up, or have with no complications, a BMI of 30 and up. For surgery, uh, we surgery is currently recommended with a BMI of 30 and type 2 diabetes as a complication, or a BMI of 35 and up with no comorbidities. So that's our overall scheme for how we're going to approach patients. And then, you know, I made my career based on lifestyle intervention, but most of the time, all we can get with lifestyle intervention is about 5 to 10% weight loss. And many patients cannot even achieve 5% weight loss. So for patients who have complications, who have more severe uh, comorbidities associated with excess abnormal body fat, we need to up our game. Fortunately, we're getting some medications that can help us treat this chronic disease that can help us achieve and sustain enough weight loss to improve all of those complications associated with obesity. But in general, for patients who have more severe uh, complications, we're going to use medications and we're going to consider bariatric surgery procedures. On average, we get about a 25% weight loss with um, gastric sleeve, and a little bit more with Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Um, gastric bands are rarely used uh, now nowadays, um, but, but sometimes we'll use devices along with medications to get enough weight loss to sustain health benefits. I think the most important thing in setting these goals for how much weight we're trying to lose is to use percentage not pounds, because across all the BMI spectrum, the same percentage weight loss will produce the same health benefits. And we need to be, we need to be upping our game for patients who have, who have more complications. We need to be adding medications. We need to be considering bariatric surgery sooner. So lifestyle intervention is the foundation of any intervention. So if you want to lose weight, you must create a negative energy balance. So we're trying to create that negative energy balance with a diet meal plan. But we also want to move our patients to a healthier eating pattern. 
you know, there's a benefit not just to weight loss, there's a benefit to a healthier diet. So we really want to do a twofold approach there. Physical activity is critical. It's less important in the weight loss phase and more important in that weight loss maintenance phase. But we generally want to introduce physical activity during the weight loss phase. We want to uh, promote the four pillars of health and healthy behavior habits, good sleep, limited alcohol consumption, stress reduction, good mental health approaches. So the components of success are that healthy reduced calorie meal plan, aerobic and resistance exercise, and behavior change interventions. You know, what we're really doing when we're giving lifestyle counseling is we're helping our patients with skills training to give them the, the mechanisms to achieve and sustain that negative energy balance. You know, when you're losing weight, you're losing not just fat, you're losing lean mass. And that's why it's so important that we include physical activity with every one of our interventions. And I make a special point of it in, in these newer anti-obesity medications, because when you achieve more weight loss, it's more important to preserve that lean mass. Okay, so let's, um, let's talk about the various therapies. So we have on the left here, uh, simple advice, advice from a dietitian, internet program, self-help, towards structured programs like Weight Watchers, multidisciplinary programs. All of these are intensification of the lifestyle. And then we even have physician-driven, individualized, uh, structured programs. So what is the best diet uh, to put patients on? Well, we've had many, many studies that have shown, this is one of the first, Foster et al., low fat versus low carb. Maybe there's a little bit of difference at six months of favoring low carb, but at the end of 12 months and then 24 months, it looks like we're getting weight gain, both, but more weight gain with the low carb. So we get basically equal weight loss on a low fat or low, low, low carb diet. And then we've even found that it really doesn't matter which diet the patient's on, it matters what they can adhere to, adhere to, and that's what predicts success. Reduce calorie meal plans, provide structure, but the patient needs to uh, be happy with, these, with a reduced calorie meal plan. So that means a plant-based diet, which is high, low in glycemic index, but if the patient finds that it's very hunger producing, then maybe a low carb diet is best for each. Physical activity, <clears throat> we always recommend 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic, aerobic activity, but that's not going to be enough. You must engage in muscle strengthening exercise two to three days a week, especially as you get older, to protect your lean mass. As you lose weight, you lose muscle and uh, fat. And you're, the only way to decrease that, that total energy expenditure is building muscle. The more intense the physical activity, the more weight loss and weight maintenance 
you can achieve. <clears throat> Intervention support can be done by either individually or in groups. Anybody who has joined a group and uh, been successful realizes that as long as you keep going to the group, group you can keep that weight off. All right. <clears throat> weight losses with a year here with um, different lifestyles, as you can see, you can get uh, most of the time 5% weight loss and more rarely 10% weight loss, but adding pharmacotherapy will increase that weight loss. That's the whole point. Let's go, let's now talk about a few cases. Yeah, thank you, Carolyn. So we're going to start with um, with a patient case. We have George here. He's a 34-year-old male uh, with a physically demanding job, and he presents for his annual follow-up. He reports no health issues, but he failed to meet the weight requirements for his National Guard biannual checkup. Past medical history does include hypertension. His vitals reveal a BMI of 31 and a BP of 126 over 76. Current meds, he's on Losartan, 100 milligrams daily, physical exam. He has a bodybuilder physique. His waist circumference is 37 inches. His labs show us an A1C of 5.4%, LDL cholesterol of 120, HDL of 44, triglycerides of 150, and his other labs are all normal. So for Donna and Carolyn, how would you approach um, a patient like George? What do you think um, we would suggest for him? Yeah, you know, this is the, the characteristic phenotype of metabolically healthy obesity. He does not have excess abnormal body fat that is driving ill health. He's got a lot of lean mass. Look at that waist circumference, 37. That's, that's perfectly normal. And, you know, there's absolutely no evidence that he's got metabolic uh, complications of obesity. Hypertension is fairly common. It is not always related to obesity. And I think that's the case here. But, you know, we worry as, um, as this patient goes through his life, he's going to fall under the same obesogenic environment that we are all on. So he's protected now by his job that requires a lot of physical activity. But when he retires, he's going to be at increased risk. So we need to follow him over time to make sure that he doesn't gain fat and lose lean. So our next case is from Mona. She's a 56-year-old female who's seeing you for the first time. She reports multiple attempts at dietary management for her weight, and her husband has been complaining about her loud snoring at night. She's also noticed increased fatigue and lethargy. Her past medical history includes hypertension, um, depression. Um, it was diagnosed at age 48, weight gain after three pregnancies and menopause. She has bilateral knee arthritis, prediabetes for two years. Her vitals show us a BP of 150 over 90, heart rate of 60. Her weight is 175. She's five feet, two inches, uh, yielding a BMI of 31. And her waist circumference is 40 inches. Uh, her current meds include a tenolol, 50 milligrams daily, hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, and paroxetine, 10 milligrams daily. Her physical exam uh, reveals two-plus edema of her ankles and her labs uh, show a fasting glucose of 135 with an A1C of 6.4%. Um, her social history is um, includes a diet high in sugar, 
high fat foods with nighttime eating, no breakfast, minimal exercise due to patellar pain. Uh, she did quit smoking three years ago, but previously smoked two packs per day, and she denies alcohol use. So, Carolyn, what's your impression of Mona? What would you do with her? Well, let's go back to her uh, factors, because here we really need, um, we need to do something. She already has, she's She's got a BMI of 31, which is class one obesity, a waist of 40 inches, which is uh, signifies visceral body fat. But we already know that because her, she's got hypertension and weight gain after her pregnancies and menopause, knee arthritis, and she's already has prediabetes. She's also on two drugs that promote weight gain, atenolol and paroxetine. There's no reason for someone with hypertension alone without congestive heart failure or status post MI to be on a tenolol, pick another drug. She, uh, she's, I mean, basically she has diabetes and hemoglobin A1C is one point away from it. And on top of that, we need to talk to her about diet and exercise. She's, uh, she's, she's got a pattern including a nighttime eating with no breakfast and also minimal exercise. She quit smoking and probably uh, uh, instead of smoking started to overeat and that's why she's gained all this weight. So we need to do um, items that I, I would argue is are best done by an MD, an MD in a weight management program who can put her on better drugs for her depression and hypertension. So a tenolol should be switched out for lisinopril or an arm and paroxetine should be switched out for Lexapro or one of the other SSRIs. She should also, uh, uh, now the dietitian can help put her on a better diet than what she's on, but I would argue that she needs an anti-obesity agent to help her make better choices than what she's doing right now. And she also needs to embark on an exercise program without hurting herself. And that may mean starting to swim or water aerobics or losing 10 or 20 pounds as soon as possible in order to reduce the pain in her knees so that she can walk and get on a bike and treadmill. That's what I would do. Now, the other the other answers here are not necessarily wrong. You want to refer to a dietitian. You want to recommend the patient increase exercise. You may, you may want to start metformin, but I think the best option would be weight management, including pharmacotherapy. So it, really, you want to do all of these things. So following up with Carolyn's suggestion, um, we did start her on a low glycemic eating plan. Tenolol was tapered and then Ramipril five milligrams daily was started. Uh, metformin 500 milligrams daily was started. Um, she described increased fullness and in two weeks, the met was increased to twice daily. At visit two, 
um, bupropion, 100 milligrams uh, daily was started and the peroxidine was decreased to 10 milligrams daily. Her mood is the same, um, a little more energy. The bupropion was eventually increased to 100 milligrams twice daily and her appetite and craving improved as well. At six weeks, she lost 15 pounds. Her snoring and fatigue improved. Her sleep study um, was not considered necessary at this time. A course of physical therapy prescribed to improve her knee strength, beginning with the walking program. And over eight months, she lost 40 pounds. Her weight is now 135 pounds with a BP of 122 over 74, A1C of uh, 5.7, and a glucose of 93. Her nighttime eating is under control, and her current med um, medications, again, she's on Ramipril, 2.5 milligrams daily, uh, met to 500 milligrams twice daily and bu bupropion 100 milligrams twice daily and paroxetine 10 milligrams daily. So we really did kind of um, a lot of interventions for this patient that were successful. Right. How do you monitor progress? Frequent patient follow-up is key. We do not send patients home with a diet exercise program and, you know, semaglutide and keep and, and have them come back in six months. We need to see them at least monthly for the first months. That's covered by Medicare and Medicaid. Then at least every three months for follow-up, for follow-up of side effects. Maybe they didn't like the diet you put them on. Maybe they hurt themselves exercising. You need to know this. You need to know side effects of medications to <clears throat> assess how your treatment is going. This is a chronic disease with chronic management. Regular support with long-term treatment can be very effective that way. So just to summarize here, obesity is a chronic disease, not a matter of willpower. It needs to be uh, chronically managed. You must talk to patients about why it's a disease, when they understand that your body is regulating your body weight and because of the environment is, your set point is higher than is healthy, people will understand and understand that, that, that they need help, number one, uh, and that it's not their fault. Windows of opportunity when patients will engage in more intensive weight management efforts where they, when they get new diagnoses or had an MI, or they've been told that if they don't do something, they're going to um, have to be on insulin for their diabetes, uncontrolled risk factors, feeling and function. As you get older, obesity can cause a lot of dysfunction and functionality issues. No diet is superior to others using shared decision-making with the patient to choose which diet is optimal for the patient is the way to go, and setting achievable goals. What's achievable? 5 to 10% and now up to 15% with our newer medications, uh, not most notably semaglutide, and uh, uh, go up from there based on targeted health improvements. Encouraging patients to return by setting realistic expectations and providing support with the understanding that they have a disease will ensure that they keep coming back and get to their goals. 
And yes, so using shared decision-making strategies to discuss options for weight loss, including um, pharmacotherapy, is going to be our our best option for this patient. And we've got lots of details in the rationale here for for you to take a look at um, if you need further clarification. And your best option is going to be C, the 32-year-old woman with a BMI of 30 and no comorbidities. And again, we've got um, this. This was got uh, reviewed in the slides that we've covered, and we have rationale detail here for um, to explain why that's our best option. Thank you so much for participating, and thank you so much to our um, wonderful faculty, Dr. Ryan and Dr. Opovian, for your um, really cutting-edge insight and information that you're sharing with us. To earn CME and CE credit for this activity, please click on the button below. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, in partnership with Practicing Clinicians Exchange, ProCE LLC and Q Synthesis and is supported by an educational grant from Lilly. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com/cme. Thank you for listening.